Welcome to this podcast from Central, Jesus at the Heart. More information is available from www.jesusattheheart.org. Good evening, everyone. How are we doing? A lot of sun-kissed faces out there. Yeah? Some people back from holidays. Some people looking a little pinker than maybe is appropriate. Um, we are in week four, our final week of, um, of our series called How to Kill Giants and Influence People, which is all about the life and the times and the leadership um, of King David. Maybe you've heard of him, maybe you haven't. We've been looking um, in the first week at the way that he took risks and really gambled um, on the presence of God. We looked in the second week at the way that he honored those people all around him. Um, and last week, um, Carl shared with us a little bit about how David still managed to fulfill a great deal of the potential um, that God had placed inside of him despite his failings, despite his sin, despite the way um, he turned away from God at times as well. And um, tonight, we are going to look at this chapter um, in 2 Samuel and chapter 6. So if you've got a Bible with you, get that ready. Be warned, it's quite a long passage so you might get a bit bored of the sound of my voice, but um, we're going to be looking at what we can learn from the life of David this week, and particularly we're going to be looking at a few different characters in this story um, from this passage, Um, and particularly the way that they respond all very differently to God. And for those of you who've been around here before, when I get to the end of my talk, I'm going to think about um, how we all respond to God. And you might not want to just wait until the end of my talk. You might want to think, actually, I'm just going to take a second. Actually, in my lifetime, how have I responded to God? What does that look like for me in my life? Or you might even want to think, actually, today, just today in my prayer life maybe or in my relationships, what does it look like for me to respond to God and his goodness and his mercy in my life? So... 2 Samuel chapter 6. David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. He and all his men set out from Bala of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of the God, with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with songs and with harps and lyres and tambourines and sistrums and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God, because the oxen had stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act, and therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because of the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day that place is still called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David, Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. 
Now King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. And David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all of his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. And after he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. And verse 20, when David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people, Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michal, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. We just pray really quickly just before we get going into this. Um, Heavenly Father, we're really aware that you are present with us just now. And we want one thing to, to encounter you. We're amazed that these stories from thousands of years ago can still speak to our hearts, but um, would we be ready for that? And God, would you speak to us each individually about how we can respond to you? And would you speak to us together as a community, as a family, as your daughters and sons in Christ of how we can respond to you and give you the glory that you're worth? Because you are the one true king and you're reigning in your throne gloriously now. Pray that my words might give you glory and that our hearts might worship you as, as we consider all that you've done through our history. Amen. Amen. So, that was a really, really long passage. So well done for, for sitting through that. Um, I'm going to summarize a little bit of what we've just read in a kind of a really quick-fire snapshot, kind of whirlwind summary. So you ready? You ready? Great. So there's this Ark of the Covenant, which you'll know from the Indiana Jones films, and the Israelites had been a bit silly, and they'd lost it. Um, but now that David was king, he was, like, really keen to bring it back to Jerusalem because, you know, he was one of the good guys, and it wasn't enough that he was just king himself, but he wanted God's rule to be the most important in Jerusalem. Nice one, David. So he takes 30,000 men because he's a bit of a drama queen and he tries to bring it back. But somebody gets killed by God when they try and catch it falling off the cart and David gives up 
and then comes back. And by this time, they do bring it back to Jerusalem. And for some reason that nobody is really quite sure of, David's not really got any clothes on. And he gets back and his wife is really, really unimpressed. And so she ends up having no more kids before she dies. And just thanks for coming, everyone. It's been really great to have you. <laughs> um, no, no, not at all. Um, there's some stuff that's going to be really helpful for us to know and to learn from this passage. Um, but hopefully at the heart of it is this inspiring leader, David, who did not compromise in his passion for God. But first of all, we have to ask a few questions of this story too, because to me, um, it's not that straightforward. And firstly, um, first question, what was this ark? And why was it such a big deal to the Israelites? Well, the Ark of the Covenant was a rectangular box, which about four feet in length, so about my height, as Aaron was saying earlier, um, and about two feet in width. So if you kind of think of a wooden version of me, <laughs> then that's basically the, the Ark of the Covenant. Um, and the ark contained three items. The very tablets of stone that Moses had received. Um, he'd received them on Mount Sinai when God had given him the Ten Commandments, if you remember that. It also contained a jar of the manna food that God had provided his people with in the desert. And also Aaron, um, who was Mo Moses' brother, had this staff that God used to perform all sorts of miracles when he was saving them um, from slavery in Egypt. So those were the three things that were in the ark. And the people of Israel tried to carry this ark around with them wherever they could because it was such a clear reminder for them um, who were a very forgetful people that God covenanted with them on Mount Sinai. So he, that, all that means is that God said to them that you are going to be my people, I'm going to be your God, we're in a relationship, this is serious. That's what he said. So this ark reminded them of all those things, of his provision, of his saving grace, of the covenant that they had together. And before we go any further, I'm talking about the ark, let's get one thing straight. The ark did not carry God in it. God was not in the ark. And actually, you can read the Bible and think that actually he is, but he's not. And, and actually, they were very clear on that. The Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets were very clear um, on rebuking people that did think that. God wasn't this life force that they could capture and contain, that you can't put God in a box. That actually, God always has been and still is a highly personal God. We can't know God outside of relationship with him. And this wasn't so much a reminder of their history, but a reminder of what still was going on for their people. God still saved, God still provided for them, and they were still in a very serious and weighty relationship with this same God that was great, yeah, but it wasn't always easy. So this ark was their tangible reminder of God's presence. God was with them, just as God is with us today. If you don't know that, God is with us today. God is with you in your hurting, in your joy, in your lives. God is with you. And what was significant about this event was, was that the ark had been taken from them by the Philistines that had had all these sorts of wars. But now that David was king of Israel and ruling from Jerusalem, he was making an early and definitive statement about his leadership. So he may have been the ruling king, yeah, but he knew that he was only trying to steward God's kingdom. That actually he wasn't the main event. The God of Israel was, and he wanted his people to know that God was with them too 
and he wanted their land to prosper because of God's presence with them. So often we talk about God's presence here in in church settings, and and sometimes it can be confusing, I think. Sometimes it can kind of sound as as though God's presence is this extra kind of add-on outside agent that we need to coax in if we say the right particular words, and then maybe it will come like this kind of magic formula. And and I understand why we talk about that, how we welcome God into our place. I I understand why we do that, but, but actually, to be in the presence of the king means that we go where the king already is. Into his dominion, into his throne room, that's where we're invited. And we recognize his importance and his imminence, his closeness, his nearness, and the ark, as well as our funnily worded kind of stumbling prayers in church services, they serve to remind us that God was and is the God of history. But also that he does stuff that God is not dead, that he isn't this grand old clock maker that wound us up thousands of years ago and just let us go and isn't bothered about what happens to us anymore. That's not true. He isn't this kind of vague notion of fluffy goodness. He does stuff. He physically saves. He physically heals. He physically speaks to us. We can hear him and he listens as well. So David's priority was ushering in the rule and the reign of the one true king. The influence that David had on his people was already pointing away from himself and instead towards God. And and that was even though he was severely flawed, as we learned last week. But the Bible still says that he was a man after God's own heart. And for me, that really challenges me and my legacy. What sort of legacy am I leaving behind? What sort of influence do I have on the people around me? Am I really quick um, to usher in God's reign, to always point to him? And how does that compare with the influence that, that you think you have on those around you? In what ways do we really say, God, your kingdom first. I'm gonna seat you first. I'm gonna, instead of taking the glory, I'm gonna point people over to you. I'm gonna bring back your glory. So that's the Ark of the Covenant. And and so they were getting really excited about bringing it home to Jerusalem. Um, This is a feeling I can really relate to. About maybe four or five weeks ago, I had these grand visions of bringing something home. There was this cup. It was in Brazil. I thought we were going to bring it home. I thought football was coming home. It didn't. And actually, if we compare that mission with the mission of these guys. The first time they tried to bring the art back, I think we can say that they were both equally disastrous um, with no slight on Roy Hodgson's managerial skills. Um, When God gave his law to Moses, and it was documented in these books at the beginning of the Old Testament, um, like Numbers and Leviticus and all the ones that we get stuck in and kind of skip over when we try and read the Bible in one year, um, actually he was pretty clear on the order of the things um, that he wanted particularly with the Ark of the Covenant. So there's a few verses that are going to be behind me. Um, And and they talk about the Kohathites. So God had these special priestly people called the Levites that he kind of said way back when he started out with the people of Israel. These guys are set aside to kind of do the ritual stuff, the temple stuff. They're going to take care of all the sacrifices and everything. And the Kohathites were a kind of subset of them. So it says here in Numbers, the Kohathites are to carry those things that are in the tent of meeting. Over it, they are to spread a covering of durable leather 
and put poles in place. And only then are the Kohathites to come and do the carrying, but they must not touch the holy things or they will die. So it sounds pretty straightforward. These guys with the, um, the Kohathites, a subsection of the Levite tribe, so yep, that's that first box ticked. They're the right people taking the ark. Um, but if you look at verse three, it says, interestingly, they set the ark of God on a cart, not a pole, as, as it says in Numbers. And that might seem a little thing, but actually they brought it from the house of Abinadab on a cart. They guided it down on a cart, but when they hit the threshing floor, naturally the cart stumbled, and that's when Uzzah stretched out his hand to stop this treasured possession of Israel being damaged and being broken. And actually it turns out that that was the last part he had to play in this story. So because of the actions that he took in the first place, that led to this tragic event. And okay, you kind of think, right, fair enough, a little bit of a ticking off from God. Okay, you broke the rules, maybe a little slap on the wrist. At worst, maybe something like a burnt hand or something like that. That's what I thought. But, really, but death? Really? Well, yeah, dead. That's what, it, that's what it says in this passage. And it also happened to a couple who lied to God in the New Testament, Annas and Sapphira. Um, it seems to me, this is difficult stuff, that, that even though God rescues, he saves, he provides, he also takes it pretty seriously when we fail to take him seriously and our relationship with him seriously. Because we've got to remember that these guys were priests. They knew exactly what God had asked of them. They spent their whole lives learning what God had asked them to do. They'd had their ark in, in their house for years, but maybe it was just a bit of a case of over-familiarity with the ark, leading to a bit of flippancy and actually turning out an event that God just could not have his holy men, the guys that he had set apart, leading the rest of Israel in. I think without doubt, we would have stretched out our hand to save the ark. We would have said, oh no, I don't want this to break. This is such a big deal. But actually, I think that's not really the point. The point is that that would have been trying to cover up what had gone badly wrong before. It would have been a case of the right thing actually being the wrong thing completely. And here's the thing. It's really simple. God really desires our obedience. And that might be a hard thing to hear tonight. Um, it might be something that you, you're really up for. Jesus said that if you love me, you will obey my commandments. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. And the chances are that we're not going to die when we're selfish, when we're greedy. I've, that's, I've never seen that happen to anybody in my lifetime. But it still grieves the heart of the Father, our Heavenly Father, who loves us so much, who loves it when we bring glory to him. It grieves it when we turn away for what he wants. It grieves it when we turn our back on the relationship that he has prepared for us. And I think the death of Uzzah was a case of this religious leader forgetting God's most basic instructions and instead trying to rescue it at the last moment with this kind of last gasp effort. And I wonder if that sounds familiar with us in our daily walks with God. Often we're so comfortable straying from him, not living the life that he's asked us to live. And we kind of think, oh, do you know what? I know this isn't quite right, but I think, I think I'll, I'll sort it out later on. It's going to be okay. This isn't, it's only a little thing. I'll sort it out. And actually, to be honest, it'll be fine whenever I get that new job. 
it'll be, it'll be fine whenever my, kind of, my sleep pattern improves and it'll be fine whenever I get a new set of friends, whatever it is. But actually, Jesus loves it when we are obedient to him because he's prepared this thing called life to the full for us. But that also means that we've got to walk in, in step with him. Religion. Religion can be this beautiful thing. There's a lot of people who go around saying, do you know what, I'm, I'm not religious, I'm a Christian. And, and I get that, I totally understand that. I've got a lot of time for that. But I think religion can also be a beautiful thing. Often it can lead us to the wonder and the mystery of God in ways that otherwise we really would have missed out on. I love reading the prayers of the guys that wrote them hundreds of years ago and I can kind of learn from them and I can share in the way that they met with God. And I love going to cathedrals and seeing the amazing detail and that leads me to worship and kind of think, man, God is awesome. This building took more than a year. (laughs) That's the full extent of my architectural knowledge. (laughs) But actually I think religion should come also with a bit of a, a warning a kind of a danger warning slapped on on the middle saying, be careful. Because the danger is that like Uzzah, we can start to think that we take care of God. We begin to think that we know what to do with God. We know what's best for God. And this passage shows us, at your peril, you do that. Over-familiarity can breed to contempt. We know that with all sorts of things in our lives. And I think it's no different with our relationship with God. Not that it's bad to hang out with him too much, but it's very easy for us to go through the motions, just get familiar, just kind of forget about the fact that it's actually a relationship. We talk to him, we hear from him, we love him, he loves us. It's a real thing that's going on, that he does stuff. And actually, God has never been interested in that. If you need to do one thing tonight, maybe you just need to change it up. Maybe when we worship, we need to stand on your head or something just to stop you from going through the motions. Because God is not interested in that. He had so much to say about that that I'm not going to go into tonight. The ark reminds us of his presence, his speaking, his saving, providing. And others' death death reminds us that I think he is too powerful, he is too mighty, and he is too holy for us to try and fit into our back pockets. And yes, it is a little scary. And yes, it doesn't always fit into our neat views of who God is. And yes, it freaks me out a little bit sometimes. But at the heart of reading about these guys, I kind of think, well, how, how am I going to influence the people around me? Because remember, these guys, the Levites, had a real leadership role in Israel. They were the guys who were set apart. And I think, well, okay, well, I could copy them and I could be a rule keeper. But eventually, we're, we're all going to fail trying to keep people accountable to a certain set of rules. And we're all going to fail and stumble doing the right things for the wrong reasons eventually and trying to paper over the cracks. But I'd love to suggest to us tonight that we choose a different path, that instead that we could be focused God worshippers in relationship with him. In a real relationship of love with God our Father, with Jesus our brother, the Holy Spirit guiding each step that we take. And I don't think it's any accident that these two stories are juxtaposed together. For, for all of us are doing kind of the right thing that actually turned out to be doing the wrong thing, David is doing something that you kind of think is so, so wrong in that kind of way. You know people say, that is wrong on so many levels. Heard people say that? Kind of like farting in a lift. Um, 
sorry. Um, and actually, I think the passage is trying to tell us <laughs> that you weren't expecting that, were you? Um, <laughs> neither was I. Um, <laughs> actually, the passage I think is trying to say, flip it around, David is doing something that can seem so, so wrong that was actually so, so right because he is making a sacrifice of praise before the Lord. He's doing something that Uzzah just was not prepared to do. And so just before we kind of move into our next section, um, just to remind you that he was dancing before the Lord with all his might. When was the last time you danced with all your might? When was the last time? Can you picture it? Was it a Kaylee? Was it a wedding? Was it in front of the mirror as you were getting ready to go out? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Some of you it was. <laughs> David was dancing before the Lord with all his might in only a linen ephod, which, if you don't know, was basically the Israelite equivalent of basically like your dad in some speedos at the beach. And you're just like, oh no, dad, come on. You need to get some proper shorts. Um, I'm not going to say what my mum might wear at the beach because she's here tonight, so it'd be a bit inappropriate. But before I talk any more about undignified dancing, I'd like everybody to stand. If you can stand, let's stand up just now. So I want you to follow my instructions very carefully. Obviously, you're, you're all so welcome here, and if you don't want to take part in this, that's totally fine, absolutely. Um, but if you can, please stand with me. And, and the next thing I'd like you to do is to close your eyes. Just to close your eyes. Nobody is watching you. It's just you and an empty room. And Ben's going to start playing some music. And maybe you want to just start moving your hands around a little bit. Maybe you want to start moving around a little bit. I've got my eyes closed too. Maybe you want to sing along. Maybe you want to bust the move. Remember, nobody's watching you. Okay, the beat's about to kick in, so we're going to go for it this time. Give yourselves a round of applause, that was brilliant. <laughs> I kind of feel a little bit like Mr. Motivator from ITV. Um, why don't you just quickly turn to the person beside you and tell them how that made you feel. Tell them how that made you feel. <laughs> yeah, how did it make you feel? Great, because it's my birthday today. Is it your birthday? That's so cool. How, can I ask you how old you are? I'm Is... young, Emma. I'm getting young. <laughs> okay, um, maybe you want to give some feedback, just a couple of words. How did that feel? How did we get on? Need a better tune? That's not the question I asked. <laughs> How did that make you feel? Sorry? Amazing, great. Any other responses? A bit self-conscious, self yeah, definitely. Did it help your eyes were closed? Okay. Um, and, and I've got Margaret at the front here who said it felt, um, she felt amazing because it's her birthday today. So let's give Margaret a round of applause. 
Is it your birthday too? Okay, it's also Dan's birthday as well, so let's give Dan a round of applause. <laughs> this is just descending into a bit of a party, really, isn't it? Um, so I'm, I'm guessing that some of the words that you might have felt, maybe you felt a little bit awkward. Maybe you felt a little bit vulnerable. Maybe you felt a little bit stupid. Maybe you felt like it was actually a little bit inauthentic. You didn't really want to be doing that, and I was kind of forcing you. And I'm sorry I made you do that, but actually you seem to quite enjoy it. Um, and, and before we, we kind of move on to, to worship and prayer and considering how we're going to respond to this kind of challenge, um, I'm just going to share a few really simple thoughts on, on David's incredible, I think, incredible example of humility and leadership before we go into a time of, of responding ourselves. And the first thing that I, I want to pick from this passage is that worship is a physical thing. Worship is a physical thing. It would be really easy for, for us to read this passage together um, and kind of look at this amazing act of sacrifice that David brings and of love for God and, and kind of just make it really simply a metaphor. And I could come up with this kind of pithy um, phrasing and I, I could say, well, actually, like King David, we should let the music of our lives enter into the corridors of our existence and hear the, yeah. Um, <laughs> but actually, I don't, I don't think that would be right. I don't think that would be right. A big part of worship can be and should be physical. And there are lots of ways to worship which means that if we're going to be expressive, we need to add and find the many strings to our bow. Because actually, we, if you know anything about David, if you've read the Psalms, he was one of the best guys at really crying out to God in hard times, in really difficult places, which is something that we've been doing already tonight, which is so important that we know how to do that in our relationship with God, in our worship. But David wasn't just that guy. He was also the guy that danced. He was also the guy that wrote his own songs, that he was also the guy that led other people in worship. And actually, the word became flesh as well. It tells us in John, the word became flesh and Jesus went to weddings. And it doesn't say this explicitly, but I'm almost certain that Jesus knew his foxtrot from his gangam style. And if Jesus knew that, if Jesus was at weddings and danced, then I think that we ought to follow his example as well as David's. And the Hebrew equivalent word to worship in the Old Testament was shakak. So can everyone say shakak? Well done. Um, this word basically means to bow down. To bow down. It refers, that's what the word meant. It refers to a posture of submission, um, and therefore a really simple acknowledgement of God's rule, of God's reign over their lives. It sounds so simple, doesn't it? We can make it into just a whole palaver that it doesn't need to be. Just bowing down before God because he is our king. But how often do we really engage our bodies in worship? Try it sometime. We've just been giving it a go. Um, maybe it could actually release something new. We're so good at kind of overanalyzing things, aren't we, and letting our minds um, lead the way. But maybe just once in a while, you just have to say, God is king, I'm going to bow down, that's going to be the first thing that I do this evening. And just see where you get on from there. Maybe you need to pick up a flag. Maybe you need to just wave your hands in the air like you just don't care. <laughs> but this is the example that David gave to us, and we would be, we'd do well to follow it, I think. 
It might even be fun when we get into it. And, and if you're anything like me, you do like to overanalyze things and you, you think, well, I want to be able to feel like I want to do it before I do it. Because, you know, Thomas, I'm kind of pretending to be you here. Um, worship is supposed to be a response, this genuine response, an authentic response. And it is. And do you know that David's example is about as authentic as it possibly can get? Because if we look earlier in the chapter, before he dances, verse 8, he's getting mad at God. It says David was angry at God. I didn't even know that you could do that. But you can. You can get angry. You can cry out to God sometimes. Verse 9, it says that David was even afraid of God. David got real with God in a way that I think Uzzah really never got to. And that makes his dancing all the more significant because it was real. About 10 years ago, I went to um, a church in Sydney called Hillsong. Um, Give me a little wave if you've heard of that, if you've been out there before. Yeah, some of you. Um, And there were about 10, um, 12,000 of us in this big kind of purpose-built amphitheater. It was amazing. There were all the lights that you could ever dream of. It sounded amazing. Um, And there were kind of 20 um, worship leaders on the stage all just absolutely going for it. And you know, I absolutely hated it. This is going to be like on the, on the front page of the sun tomorrow. <laughs> worship pastor hates worship in worship shocker scandal. Um, <laughs> but I absolutely hated it. I, I stood there like a statue, like with all the, the best kind of psychology I, I could draw upon as a 17-year-old guy, trying to kind of psychoanalyze everybody on the stage, thinking, you don't really mean this, do you? You don't, you know, what really is making you smile that much? You know, what, what really made you lift your hand in that way? This is all just a bit funny, isn't it? I kind of thought to myself as I stood there with my arms folded, <laughs> with my brow furrowed. And actually, I can kind of reflect on that 10 years later, having learned a little bit. And I, I now know that, that firstly, it's not my job to search other people's hearts. That's a really simple thing. Maybe a lot of us know that, but maybe some of us need to be reminded of that. It's not our job to search other people's hearts. That's God's job. Actually, we're supposed to encourage each other, build one another up as the body of Christ. And secondly, I think the guys at Hillsong had twigged something that I really hadn't twigged yet, and that I think David probably had, that that worship isn't always something that we have to feel but it's a physical, it's an emotional act of recognizing that someone or something is worth it, is worth our praise. What we might say around here is worthy of our praise. No matter how we feel, no matter where we're at, God is worthy. He is the one true king. I'm going to say that again and again. He is the one who saves us, who rescues us, who provides for us. And it kind of feels funny when we're reminded of all that when you're reminded actually of all that God has done for us, of all that God is doing in our lives, that we would kind of have this opportunity to give him what he's due, and then we would make this, we would make the decision to instead look at other people and kind of criticize and critique where they're at, but we've all done it. We've all done it. Just as I looked on with disdain back then, um, there was an onlooker in this story here. 
um, David's wife made her position very clear. She said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. She couldn't handle it. She couldn't handle his heart for God. And I don't think we really need to say much about Michelle. It really didn't work out well for her. And Jesus was so exceptionally clear to his followers, to us guys, that people who judge others will be judged by a harsh measure themselves. So that's not a route that we want to go down. David had no problem acting like a vulgar fellow. A big part of worship is vulnerability in our whole lives, but especially, I think, in this context, when we're gathered together as his sons, as his daughters, encouraging each other. It's an audience of one thing. So maybe you want to get that phrase inside your head when you come to worship, singing, moving, praying, for an audience of one, that we don't perform for one another, we only sing for him. But it's also a community thing too, because I'm guessing that David felt pretty stupid prancing about in his underwear. I'm sure that all of us would, with thousands of people watching on, but he was a determined worshiper, and that had a powerful influence on those around him. I have this friend um, called Lawrence. Maybe some of you know Lawrence. He, he moved to London um, at the end of last year. He's a great guy. Um, and he used to come here to church, and he used to regularly stand on the chairs and just go for it in worship. And we love that. It was just incredible. He, he was worshiping for an audience of one. And he used to, used to kind of dance around like this, like he was kind of on top of the pops in the late 70s. And, you know, he had those people kind of flailing. And he was a rubbish dancer. He really was. But it didn't matter. He was dancing for an audience of one. But actually, the effect that that had on people around him, especially me, especially his friends, was in- incredible. It really just kind of, he was vulnerable, and we just became so much more free just to be ourselves before God. And that was brilliant. Why don't we all do that? That's the challenge. That's what David did. And if you take one thing away from me this morning, this morning, need to change my scripts for the evening. <laughs> Let it be this, that God is with us. That God is with us. God is amongst us. God is for us. That He saved us. That He is going to provide for us. That we can trust in Him. That He is a miracle worker. That He can heal our hearts. That He can heal our bodies. He can heal our minds. That we can know Him. How are we going to respond to Him? Maybe you guys could come and just get ready. Um, God is looking for worshippers that seek him with joy and expectancy. Worshipping like nobody is around being vulnerable with those around them. And the Apostle Paul made a similar prayer in his letter to the Philippians. Um, And he said this. He said, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ. Shall we stand, um, if you can, um, I'm I'm just gonna lead us in some prayer.
And we come before you, God, the holy God, the one true Lord, the maker of it all. It began with you, God, and it's going to end with you. We approach you with a a real recognition that you are awesome. That you are awesome. And God, there's something that you've done that you've invited us in to your throne room where you hang out, where you live, where you dwell. You've invited us there. We have no right to be there, but you've invited us in. And I pray that our response would be awe, would be worship, would be recognition that this is an amazing thing that you've done for us. And I pray that we'd be able just to respond to you as you would have us respond to you this evening. Whether we need to cry out to you tonight about things that we just don't understand. Whether we need to dance for you tonight because of all that you've done in our lives. Because of this thanksgiving and praise that is bubbling over in our hearts because of the goodness that you've shown us whether we need to speak out new words to you that we've never said, whether we need to ask for forgiveness from you because of the way that we've judged other people and the way that they have responded to you. And Lord, we as a, as a body are so sorry for the way that we sometimes let you down. But you place in us a new spirit and you always give us a second chance, God. That you, that you sent your son to be that sacrifice that welcomes us in, that your blood, when it was spilt on the cross, Jesus, allowed us to step into a new freedom of celebration and a new freedom of forgiveness. And God, as we worship just now, be glorified, be lifted up, God. And maybe just before even the band come and and lead us in song, why don't we just really um, speak out praise to him just now? Yeah, we worship you, God. Let's lift our voices. We worship you, God. And would you help our hearts to recognize your majesty? Let's lift our voices to him. We worship you, God, because you're good all the time, God. And even when we don't understand, Lord, what's going on, we worship you. There's nobody like you. There's nobody like you, God. There's nobody like you, Jesus. The first and the last. You're wonderful, yes, Lord. You're wonderful. The love you've shown us is wonderful. The kindness you've shown us is wonderful.